Open your heart to me. I have all that you need. Allow me to take root within you, and life will begin to grow like a seed. Praise the Lord. I feel a song rising up. I'll believe and start walking your way. I feel I've been touched by the hand of God. Salvation has come today. The word of God has finally come alive, and it feels like church is now worth my time. I mean, yeah, I still long to build my business and get rich, but hey, I know that's not a crime. I know a day will come where I won't have to pay bills. Instead, in heaven, I will receive a crown. But what about now? My job, kids, my house? These worries just won't back down. If only I had just a little more money or time, then I'd be able to focus on your word. I promise I'm not greedy. It would just be nice to not have my anxiety stirred. So first, let me make sure I have a good life before your word can begin to sprout. Then once I get there, I can relax and live comfortably. Isn't that what life's all about? It's just my problems are real and they keep on coming. If you can't solve them, I don't know what to do. At the end of the day, I gotta trust something. And I've decided I can't trust you. You know, last week we looked at the hard soil and the rocky soil. And today we're gonna look at that thorny soil, just as that video depicted. And you know, what we're what we're wanting us to see is that really in many ways in this parable, this incredible parable that is shared in many of the gospels and Matthew and Luke and Mark, that that in this parable that that we are trying to look at it from this perspective of us being that soil. Of course, we know that the word of God is that is that good seed, but that we we want to understand that. Jesus is actually talking to a broad audience, not just the audience there 2,000 years ago, but an audience today saying there are different soil types, but it's the same, it's the same seed. And when we think about the seed of the gospel, right, when we think about this, uh, about the seed being described as the word of God, um, and, and as these seeds are actually being broadcast in the agricultural term, as they're being cast, as they're being sown, we know that the seed is the same, and it's the soil that is different. And as the sower goes out to sow, there is no partiality, right? There, there, there is no prejudice. There is no, well, I don't know, you're too young or you're too old or you look like this, your personality is like that. We don't see any of that in this parable. What we see is a, is a generous sower going out and sowing the seed generously so that it can land on different hearts and on different types of soil. There's no partiality in for us, I think as we dive in today, I think it's a great question to ask, Lord, is there any partiality in me, <laughs> right? Like, is, are, are there any judgments towards somebody or a certain type of people? Maybe it's a personality type that you're different from, and that could be someone you're sitting next to right now in your living room, or maybe it's someone you work with, or maybe it's a political figure or sports figure, someone here in the church that you look at them, you're thinking, ah, I just don't like that person. I don't know if they deserve as much as this person does. You see, Jesus lived a life and demonstrated the kingdom of God in a way that was unfamiliar. It was unprecedented at that time. We've, he we've heard that word a lot these days, that these times we live in are unprecedented. But you see, Jesus flipped everything upside down. He actually said, I'm going to sow broadly. I'm going to share the good news with the rich and the poor. 
It didn't matter the skin color. It didn't matter what walk of life you're from. He wanted the gospel to go forth, not just in his day, but in the days after. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we, the church, are still a people saying we are, we are in line with the Great Commission, that we, we want to go make disciples of all the nations, not just a few nations, that we want to be able to look at people from all races and say every single person has a heart and they have a longing to know God. They have a longing to know their creator, to know their maker. So we look at this parable again in a fresh way today. I want us to be thinking about, man, is there anything that is hindering my sowing? Is there any thought process, mindset maybe that I have that is making me reluctant to maybe share the good news with some or certain types of people? Because in the end, why do we do church? Why do we read the Bible? Because we want to be more like Christ. In fact, the certain, the, the real idea behind Christianity is that we would be little Christ, followers of Jesus, following what he does and who he is and how he thinks. That's our desire again today. So I want to take us into this passage in Luke chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, open them up where you are. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. But I want to go to verse 9 and 10 to start. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. That's pretty cool. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, what are those secrets? Right? What are those secrets of the kingdom? I did a little digging this past week, and I actually looked up the Greek translation and the, and the actual word is mysterion, which is where we get the word mysteries. And mysteries have a little deeper meaning than secrets. And I'll tell you why. Because a secret can be uncovered, but a mystery must be discovered. You see, a secret can be uncovered. You can uncover that secret. Someone can tell you about it. But a mystery, there's a discovery process. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he said, the pure in heart will see God, meaning that in order to see God, you must have a pure heart. That is a process of a heart purification. The mysteries of the kingdom, therefore, I believe, are the teachings of Christ, which is why the crowds can hear them, the same teachings, the same parables, but not necessarily understand them. Because it's a discovery process, which involves participation. <laughs> participation. Now, I know you're not here in the sanctuary right now this morning, but if you were here, what I'd ask at this moment is for you to be saying things like, amen, or you got it, right? Because I want you to participate. I don't simply want you to be a hearer. I want you to be a listener that is then stepping into the place of the action, of the doing. And so, in order to discover the mysteries of the kingdom, there is a process which requires participation. So let's keep that in mind as we move on today. So this, uh, so again, the soils, the four soils, right? We talk about the hardened soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and next week on Mother's Day, um, we're going to be talking about the good soil. All these are soils that the first three have some different problems or challenges with them, but they are referring to people's hearts and minds. 
And this entire parable is talking about the, the receptiveness of someone in regards to the word of God. How receptive are you? How ready are you to receive the words of life? Not just to receive the gospel, but to receive the teachings of Christ, the mysteries of the kingdom. Which leads us to ask this question, which is, where is your soil at? And what do you need to do to get it closer to being that good soil? Last week, it was talking about those hard places in life that maybe things have been done to you or things that you've done that's actually created a hardness, a rigidity, something that you felt run over or walked over so many times, nothing can really penetrate the surface. We talked about the rocky soil, and there's things that actually existed in that soil, and those rocks take up space that that soil needs, those roots of the good seed needs, but those rocks... They're not nourishing. They're not able to soak up the water. They just take up that space in the soil. And today we're going to look at the thorny soil, this soil where the thorns eventually choke it out. It says in Luke chapter 8, verse 7, And some fell among thorns, referring to the seed. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Now, what do we know? What do we know? We know that thorns already existed in that soil, much like the rocks did in the other soil. But unlike the rocks, which don't grow, the thorns that existed grew. See, rocks don't grow, but the thorns do. The thorns actually grew up alongside the good plants and choked them out. Now, the word thorns in the Greek is really meaning a thorny plant, like a bramble bush or briars or thistles. Essentially, you could put it this way. What kind of things are we talking about? We're talking about these prickly weeds. You know the ones that just, they just prick you. They just irritate you. Not only are they taking up space, but when you rub against them, they just prick you. They just annoy you. They maybe kind of rub you, create some sort of rash. Now, I want to go back to where thorns came into existence. You ready? Here we go. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden of Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, we know him as Adam, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Both were there. Now, the Garden of Eden, we all know the story We picture in our minds this amazing place. Adam's naming animals left and right. Eventually, God forms Eve, and there they are, there to rule and to to lead in a gracious way this entire amazing area called the Garden of Eden. But we know something went wrong. And in Genesis chapter 3, 17 through 18, it describes the consequences of Adam and Eve both choosing to sin against God, both choosing to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
As far as I know, thorns or thistles were not in the Garden of Eden before sin. Sin brought about the thorns and the thistles. Now hang on to that thought for just a moment here. We're going to unpack the kind of historical meaning in a few different ways of the thorns, all right? So remember, the thorns were a result of Adam sinning against God. Let's fast forward, though, through time into the time of Moses. If you remember, Moses had this burning bush moment. He was out in the wilderness. He had escaped because he actually had killed an Egyptian man or an Egyptian kind of uh, uh, guard who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves, one of his fellow countrymen, and he took out an anger and he killed that man. He hit him, but then it was soon found out that Moses killed this guy, so then he fled, and while he's out of, outside of Egypt and he's fled, he's in hiding, God shows up in this burning bush moment to speak to them, to speak to him about delivering the Jews out of slavery uh, out, of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And in Exodus chapter 3, uses this word that the Lord showed up in the thorn bush. Right? The thorn bush. Remember going back to like a prickly weed, right? To prick. So what's interesting is that God shows up upon this moment of deliverance for his people, and he's promising Moses, you're going to lead my people out of slavery into freedom out of darkness, into light, and God uses, chooses to show up in this prickly thorn bush that is set on fire. And I look at that and I think, wow, we have a, uh, a picture of the curse of sin that God is taking the consequences upon himself in order to set his people free from bondage. Now, where else do we see thorns in the Bible? We just celebrated Easter several weeks ago, and we know in the story of Easter with Jesus being crucified on the cross, it talks about a crown of thorns that were put on Jesus' head during that crucifixion that the Roman soldiers had said of them in Matthew 27, they kept beating his head with a reed, meaning they were taking more or less, think of like a bamboo stick, and they were beating that crown of thorns into the head of Jesus that was already on his head mocking him as the king of the Jews, and these thorns were going in, piercing in, causing him pain. The sin, the sinless Jesus <laughs> suffered underneath this crown of thorns. He took it upon ourselves. These thorns resulting from Adam's sin, and now Jesus paying the price to redeem all of mankind. You see, the imagery of the soil full of thorn bushes and prickly weeds should take us to the own condition of our own soil, knowing that the only way to really remove, the only way to really deal with those prickly thorns is through Jesus. You can't just pull them out out of your own strength. You can't remove them enough. They will grow back, you see. You'll rub up against them and other seeds will pop in your soil. You can't just by your own strength yank them out by the grit of your teeth. You can't just religiously just try to just try to just do everything just perfect and just right. Do you see that that people for a thousand years tried to do everything just right to remove everything that would encumber them, everything that would enslave them, everything that would ensnare them, and it was never enough. So Jesus came and he bore the brunt of those thorns. 
those sins upon himself to set us free. But you know what's interesting is when um, thorns are allowed to grow simultaneously with plants, what happens is they end up taking water. They end up taking sunlight. They end up taking good soil, taking space. And so what I want you to hear me say today is that these thorns are taking. That's what they do. They literally take from you. They are taking from the good plants. In John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief is referring to the devil. The thorns come and take. But the good seed, the word of God, comes to give abundant life. Do you see it? Now look, Jesus is going to explain this parable for us in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Their fruit does not mature. You see, just like the hardened soil and the rocky soil, the word of God, this, this good seed, it is heard. You see, it's not that those other soil types, other people, it's not that they didn't hear. They heard. So it means they weren't ignorant of the word or deaf. They actually heard it. <clears throat> but, you know, um, maybe illustrate this way. My sister has four boys, uh, my nephews, and these are incredible young men. I love seeing them and playing with them, and they're all getting older, probably to the stage where they could take me down now if they ganged up on me, but her oldest three were all born with hearing loss, which if you're in the medical world or know anything about deafness or hearing loss, what you can know is that it is extremely rare for multiple children to have hearing loss, multiple children. And so three out of her four boys have hearing loss, and um, they have been gracious with it throughout the years and, of course, had to work through the challenges. But here's what I know about my nephews. When you talk to them, they are very attentive in looking at your mouth and looking at your eyes and your facial expressions because they need that in order to really interpret what you're saying. Especially when their hearing aids are out, right? Maybe we're swimming or something like that. They actually have to turn, look at you intently, and read your lips. Now, they've had to learn that. They weren't born with the ability to read lips, right? But they've had to learn it. And over the years, what they've realized is that they actually can pick up on a whole lot just by watching your mouth move, even though maybe they can't hear you as clearly. So what's that tell about us? There's a difference in hearing and really listening. We all experience this in marriage. I'm just going to help all of our husbands out, including me. Mother's Day is coming up, okay? All the fathers out there. We are good at hearing, okay? Men can hear. No problems there. Listening has been a little bit of a journey for most of us, right? And oftentimes, you may hear your wife or have heard of a friend say something like this, man, my wife was talking to me, but then she accused me of not really listening. And I don't know how she did that because I was right there in the conversation. But you see, instead of listening, you were eating, right? Or instead of listening, you were 
doing something. You were hearing, but you weren't really listening. To really listen, I'll tell you this from my own experience, my own life, not just in marriage, but in general. If I'm really going to focus, i got to turn the phone off or put on silent. i got to minimize the distractions, everything else, and focus in on that person. Look at their eyes, look at their mouth moving, and say, okay, what are they really saying? And here's what I'm telling you guys. All of us can do that. We are not incapable of listening. But it's simply, it's a distraction thing. It's a temptation thing. It's when there's other things growing around us, kind of encroaching on us, or maybe getting our attention, it's hard for us to really listen. But what if we engaged in real listening, not just passive hearing? So let's think about that in the context of these thorns, right? These briars, these thorny bushes growing up and choking out the good plants, the good seed. Now, I want to mention something to you. You may or may not be aware of this, but in our country, there are weeds, and then there are noxious weeds. That's right, noxious weeds. All right, let me define for you noxious weeds. They are invasive, non-native plants that are highly destructive and often difficult to control. Most grow quickly and choke out native plants and other desirable vegetation. And some are poisonous to humans and livestock. You see, it's not that noxious weeds just are obnoxious in nature. Right? It's not that they just take up space. They actually can poison you, could actually kill animals and cause all sorts of rashes and scarring even on people. Let me call out one right here. One of those noxious weeds in our country is the giant hogweed. It just sounds nasty, doesn't it? Which can grow up to 15 feet tall. And when the sap from it is touched or oozes out, it actually can cause blisters and possibly even blindness. It was brought over in the 1900s from our friends in Eastern Europe. And unfortunately, whenever it seeds, it can spread up to 20,000 seeds, 30 feet in diameter, and that's without any wind or water helping it. These giant hogweeds are very difficult to remove and to destroy. But these noxious weeds and other weeds worldwide are literally choking out good crops, good plants. It's estimated that 15 to 20% of the world's potential crop production is lost annually because of weeds. And most experts would say that number would double to 30 to 40% without the aid of pesticides and herbicides. So I want you to think just for a moment on a food level. There are people and there are countries and there are villages all over the world that need more food, period. There are food shortages, especially even now. But I wonder if you removed all the weeds. That gives us 30, 40% increase in crop production. I wonder if all the weeds were removed if everybody would have their bellies full, if everyone would have the opportunity to be nourished. You see, it matters that we remove the weeds, but truthfully, it's hard to remove them. So oftentimes, we just manage them. Even in our own lives, we just manage the weeds. We just kind of cut them back where they don't grow as much or as rapidly or pull out a few, but we don't eradicate them. Instead, we just do enough so there's a 
little bit of room for us to get water and sunlight and to grow. But you see earlier, what did Jesus say? He said that the fruit doesn't mature when the cares, the pleasures, and the riches of this life are there tempting us. We're being choked out, y'all. We're being choked by the weeds in our world. But I want to talk to you about those cares and riches and pleasures just here for a moment. The cares of the world, another way to put it, is just the things that we are anxious about and worried about. Practically, I would ask this question. What, what are we feeding ourselves day to day? Guys, we have the ability to be um, in the know about so many things. You literally right now can Google and search for news updates about any country in the world. You could search for any business. You could search about any hobbies. You could literally, the amount of information seems endless. And yet my question to us is this. Oftentimes when we're searching the news or we're following different stories, my question is how much of those stories are turning into good fruit in your life? And how many of those stories are just causing you to worry more? Now, we want to be well-informed people, no doubt about that. I want us to be informed. I don't want us to be an ignorant people. But at some level, each of us have to ask the honest question, how much is too much? How much am I inundating myself, my mind, with the cares of this world, the worries, the things that actually I can't do anything about, but are now actually discouraging my day? You know how it goes. You're having a great Saturday morning, and then somebody decides to text you a story of a tragic thing to happen to somebody that you don't know from another town, and then all of a sudden your morning just got kind of ruined? Ask yourself, was that helpful? I don't know. I think all of us have to ask the question, how much are we allowing the cares or the information of our day to invade our good soil? And maybe we need to start blocking some of those things out. In Luke 12, 22 to 23 Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. He goes on in Luke 12, 29-31, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them, of course he does, Instead, verse 31, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. So don't seek all the other stuff, but seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom rather than seek the worries and the cares of the world. Now let's move on to the riches of life. He says these weeds are about the cares, the riches, and the pleasures. Let's talk about the riches. Matthew 6, 24 no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But here's the deal. The issue is not money. The issue is not investing. The issue is not wealth. The issue is not getting a paycheck or wanting to have a good-paying job. The issue is what is your heart posture, your internal motives towards riches, towards the money, right? We have to be willing to ask the, the tough, deep-down questions. Why am I trying to make money? It's a great question all of us need to ask. Why am I pursuing a degree that pays well? Why am I investing? 
Why is money important? You've got to ask the questions about money, because it's not just in our day and age, but since the beginning of history, money has been a key thing that has pulled people away from God, that's deterred them because instead of keeping their focus on Him, seeking first His kingdom, they've sought first their own kingdom. And when you start seeking first your own kingdom, you start getting distracted from seeking His. And He's saying you can't serve both. We've got to have a core conviction, y'all, on what is God saying about money and possessions and riches. But you know, it doesn't say how much riches does it take you to be pulled away or tempted, does it? It could be $1,000 or a million dollars. In fact, for many Americans, the majority of Americans actually, in the last few weeks, just received a good chunk of change from the federal government, right? You got deposits in your bank accounts, you got a check in the mail. And I would ask the question, just so you kind of know where you are. What did I do with that money? Is that money still around? Is that money gone? Did you save it? Did you pay off debt with it? Did you pay bills? Did you buy needed shoes and clothing or maybe groceries? Or did you have a second Christmas? I would argue if you had a second Christmas, there might be something you need to deal with before God and saying, hey, whenever I'm given something, why do I just feel the urge just to go take care of me and spend it on something else? It's not that you have to save it. You can invest it in different things. But again, we always need to look at our actions in light of our motives and to see where we are on that spectrum. And whether you have a lot or a little, it's all the same. It's not just people are super wealthy all of a sudden. Well, that's that category. I don't need to worry about them. I'll deal with the cares and the pleasures. But the rich guy, I'm poor, man. I'm middle class, man. I don't need to worry about that. It doesn't matter where you are in the economic spectrum. And in fact, if you're sitting here listening saying, you know what? I do want some help. I want some help with the whole money thing. We need it. It's part of society, absolutely. But I want God's perspective. I'm tired of trying to get everyone else's advice. I want his heart. I would encourage you to the book we actually sell in our next room. When you come back, you can buy it. You can buy it online. But it's called The Treasure Principle. It's an amazing short little read, and it gives you the heart behind what God says about money. would encourage you to consider reading that, The Treasure Principle. The last piece he says about these weeds is that they refer to the pleasures of life, the pleasures of life. Now, pleasures are talking about our, our senses, right? What are, what are pleasurable to our senses, the taste, touch, feel senses? And that word in uh, pleasures in the Greek is hedon. And that's where we get our word hedonism, right? Which is a belief that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of human life. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying those weeds can symbolize in our lives the things that we are going after that we think will most ultimately satisfy and bring pleasure and happiness. Now listen, God created the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to enjoy the good foods. It says even that the trees were good to not only eat from but to look at. He wants us to be a people that are seeing his creation and say, man, incredible. I want to see the sunset and say, wow. I want to look at a, a, at a newborn baby and incredible. I want to eat a tasty bite of food and say, that is delicious. Those are all good things he wants us to enjoy. 
but he does not want us to enjoy the created over the creator. And that's where we've got to check our heart. But in fact, I would tell us that if you look at Hebrews 11, we see a little hint here as to what, what Moses found that maybe we need to discover. Hebrews 11, chapter 24 and 26, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Did you see that? Moses traded the luxury of being the number two guy in the Egyptian empire. We've all studied the Egyptian empire, the pyramids, the, the glory, the gold. He traded that for something that he thought was better. He traded that position, that standing, for what? For the reward. He was looking towards something more satisfying, more fulfilling, more lasting, more pleasurable than even the Egyptian royalty could provide. But what was it? What was that? Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Did you see that? Moses got it because he had seen the glory of God, had experienced them. He had seen the mystery of God and then discovered that mystery in a process of relationship. And what he tasted of God, even on this earth, was enough to whet his appetite for the eternal relationship, for the reward that he wanted to have that would go for all of eternity. What was it he was looking for? To be near God. To be in God's presence. That is the ultimate goal. That is the reward. That we will experience a pleasure that goes above and beyond what any of us can ever come close to on this earth. We'll experience that in heaven in His presence. But you know, to close today, I want to invite the band up and as we get ready to respond, I know that um, we may think about this message and say, wow, there's cares and riches and pleasures and what do I do with that? But I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, you're not without hope. I said earlier that Jesus actually took the crown of thorns on his head. He died on the cross. He bled and he took your sins, my sins upon him so that we could be set free, so that we could go from darkness to light, so that we could have hope, so we could breathe. So we could look up and not look around us and see all these uh, briars and thorny bushes and cactus around us and say, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm stuck. But we say, hold on a second. I know somebody that can remove these things from my life. His name is Jesus. I know the way to remove these things, which is to fix my eyes on him, to seek first his kingdom, to look towards the eternal reward, to not, to not get caught up in the worries and the cares of this world, to not get caught up in the fleeting pleasures of life, to not get caught up in just making as much money as I can today, and I don't even know why I'm doing it, but to get caught up in him, to get caught up in the presence of God. What if we looked and you're feeling like, oh, I've got these thorns in my life, 
And you've been trying to pull a few out, but they keep coming back. And you're trying to grow, but you realize the weeds grow faster. You cannot grow the weeds. You got to remove the weeds. You cannot grow them, guys. You got to remove them. But I believe that God has given the power through his Holy Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, given us that power by him only to remove those weeds. Jesus would touch a man and his leprosy would go away. Jesus would put his hands on the blind and he would see. Jesus would speak to a man, say, get up, he would walk. Jesus has the power to not only heal us physically, but to remove those weeds and thorns in our life. So that's where I want us to respond today. We need to invite Jesus in to expose those weeds in our life, those thorny, prickly bushes, and say, Jesus, help me remove them. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I just want you to take a moment and you need to ask him, because he knows, I don't know, he knows. He knows where they are, and I would, I would bet that every one of us has got something that needs to be removed. Not just managed anymore. We, we're done managing. You need to be done managing. You need to remove it. He's given you the power to do it this morning. So I just want to invite you in just to pray with me. Jesus, I ask that you would remove every thorn, every prickly weed, every noxious weed. Remove it, Lord, from my heart. If it's a prejudice or a judgment towards people that I want to interact with or so into, Lord, remove that from me, God. If it's a care in this life, a worry and anxiety that I keep carrying, Lord, remove it from my heart. Lord, if it's a, if it's a, a rich, a wealth, if it's a money-driven thing, if it's something just about me and my kingdom, Lord, remove it from my heart. Lord, if it's a pleasure, if it's something that I have put above you that I said, I don't need you anymore, God. I've got this to satisfy me, and I keep going back to it. Lord, remove it from my heart. We need you to do the surgery to remove those thorny places in us so that we can be that receptive, good soil that the Word of God not only comes in, takes root, and begins to grow, but that it gets to maturity. God, we don't want to be the fruit that doesn't mature. Let that not be said of us. They had a little fruit. It started, but they got choked out. God, we're tired of being choked out. We are tired of being choked out, Lord. So we are asking right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, come and remove these weeds. Remove the thorns from our souls and our minds and our hearts. Remove it so that the seed, the good seed, can take root and flourish. We pray. Thank you, Lord.